On February 8th, 356 A.D., the church was established at this point as the religion of the Roman Empire. And the emperor Constantius, not Constantine, this was his son, had bought into what was called the Arian heresy. This was the teachings of a man named Arius, who taught that Jesus Christ was not God, he was a created being, that there was no Holy Spirit, and a whole lot of other heretical ideas. The Nicene Creed, as I'm sure you've heard of, was formulated to refute these teachings, but because the Arians had an in with the emperor, the emperor got on board with that heresy and began to enforce it in the church. And on February 8, 356 A.D., Constantius sent 5,000 soldiers to the city of Alexandria in Egypt to arrest the bishop there named Athanasius. And Athanasius was the Martin Luther of his day. He was, he was the hard-headed, insistent upon what the Word of God said, defender of Christian orthodoxy. Well, the emperor sent 5,000 soldiers to surround what was called the Church of St. Theonis. They were having a midnight prayer vigil, and the soldiers surrounded the church and said, send out Athanasius, and the rest of you won't be hurt. Well, the people barred the doors. Athanasius set the people singing Psalm 136. If you know that, it just says one line, and then it follows, for his mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures while they're trying to figure out what to do. Now, all the other clergy, the pastors, and the rest of the folks that served in the church were trying to get Athanasius out of there. They were trying to spirit him away. He says, no, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving until I can guarantee the safety of the congregation. And they couldn't get him to get out of there. Finally, the soldiers burst through the doors. All of the congregation of the church charged at the doors that had been broken down and began to fight and hold back the Roman soldiers from getting to their pastor. Finally, the deacons and the elders were able to get Athanasius to leave, and they took him away into the desert where the monks hid him for a very long time. And I love that story because it illustrates the bond between a pastor and his church. I'm not leaving until you guys are safe. It's like, well, we're not leaving until you're safe. And then here come armed Roman legionnaires coming to break down the doors of the church. And these unarmed people who had just come for a midnight prayer meeting rush the army to try and hold them back while their pastor can get away. That's a really cool story. I love that. There is or there ought to be a special bond that exists between a pastor and his congregation. And we see this all over the world. I think especially for our part, Pastor Chuck Smith, who was the, the pastor of the first Calvary Chapel, all the people that ministered with him and were made disciples by him and were given their first experiences in ministry by him, that's all they can talk about is how much they loved Pastor Chuck and how much Pastor Chuck loved them. And for someone like me who never knew him and wasn't there for all that, sometimes it almost gets tiring to hear him talk about it so much. But that's the impact that he left upon them and the relationship that they had. And in this passage today, Paul and Silas and Timothy, the authors, they're going to finish the initial gratitude portion of the letter, this introduction. It's long, and there's a lot in there, but they're going to finish up this first part. They're going to begin their explanation of why they had to leave in their current circumstances. But before they do, there's this wonderful expression of love that they make for the church there. And you know, it's unfortunate in a lot of ways that we live at a time where someone's loyalty, you could say if we can use that word, to their congregation or to their pastor, 
on both sides, whether to the pastor, to the church, or to the church, to the pastor, that seems to have weakened. You know, it's much easier to bounce around and find somewhere and look for a, a better congregation. And uh, there's some good to that. I'm not denying that. But along the way, I think that there's less that, that example of a pastor that, you know, married and buried the folks in the church and watched their kids grow up. And, you know, there's less of that. And maybe the reason people are moving around so much, maybe the reason that happens is because folks are looking for that. They're looking for that kind of relationship that we ought to have. And there's a lot of points of application we're going to draw out today, but in the end, that's what I really want us to lean into, is that we as a church are a family, that there is a bond that we ought to have with one another, a bond of love, a bond of peace. And we're going to see the example of these apostles and the Thessalonian church. You know, we're a family. We're all we've got. In the, in the last analysis, when everything falls apart, if the country were to collapse, if there were to be this or that catastrophe that we're hearing about, we are the ones that are going to be standing together and fighting with each other and holding on to one another. So whatever you hear Paul say in this passage to the church and the Thessalonians, I hope you'll know that it could be said by me just as easily to you as well. We're a family. We're bonded together by the blood of Christ. So let's read these verses. Starting at verse 13, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I was very briefly tempted last night to just teach this verse because it's such a good verse. I hope you're starting to get an appreciation for how dense these epistles are. There's so much to draw out of every verse and even every phrase, but... We're not going to do that. <laughs> you see in this, this verse here, he's picking up the same language he had back in chapter 1. In verses 2 and 3, he had said, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering you before our God and Father. Well, now as he comes to the end of that section, he brings it back to that same language. He uses that same word, constantly, which is adialeptos in Greek. It means without ceasing praying, thanking God for the Thessalonians. And he repeats again that they're thanking God and praying because they received the word. And the next verse is going to talk about their imitation. So the, this little section here is a, a summary of everything he just said over two chapters, bringing it to a conclusion. Now, that word, the word is logos. You're familiar with that word. The word that they preached, Paul makes clear, it was not just the word of men. It was not just the opinions of men, but he says it was the true word of God. This is a very common theme in the New Testament. It's very important. Paul said, for example, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Now, to give you a little background here, Paul had been accused by people of making up his gospel message. And what they would say is, he's not preaching the same thing the apostles are preaching. Well, Paul says in Galatians 1, 11 and 12, I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So you see the same idea. He's saying, I'm not preaching man's ideas. It's not my idea. It's not someone else's idea. He'll go on to say in Galatians, it's not even the apostle's idea. This is God's word. You remember the story, of course. Paul was knocked off his, his mule on the way to 
on the way to Damascus, and the Lord spoke to him and grabbed hold of him and said, Paul, you're going to serve me from now on. And Paul says he went at that point into the desert, and the Lord confirmed the gospel to him. And it's really great because while he never saw and met Jesus personally, he saw him through a vision, and by the Holy Spirit and his study of the Word, he was able to come to the same conclusions that the other apostles had taught. So that he says, when I finally came to Jerusalem and I laid out my doctrine before the apostles, they said, I've got nothing to add. This is great. Because it was the same Holy Spirit teaching both groups of people. John in 1 John chapter 1 would come at it from a different angle. He's not talking about a revelation from heaven. He refers to what we've seen with our eyes. We've touched with our hands. We've heard with the ear. He says, this wasn't made up. I knew Jesus. I talked to Jesus. I, I leaned against him during dinner. We shared meals together. So while both of them have the same message, they came through it by different means, which reminds us that it's the Holy Spirit that is teaching these things. It's the inspired word of God that brought them to the same truth. We discussed on Wednesday night in our study of the Reformation how Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli were coming to the same conclusions but they had never met each other. And then when they finally found each other, it was like, hey, look, he's teaching the same thing I'm teaching because they were reading the same word and the same Holy Spirit was inspiring them. Now, this is important for us to emphasize today. This is a, our first point of application. We believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. It's the word of God. It's not the word of men. And there's two aspects to that. It's number one, true factually. And number two, it's true spiritually. What do I mean it was true factually? Well, just that. We believe that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, that he was the incarnate Son of God, born of a virgin, that he taught the truth during his life, that he did not sin, that he died on the cross and rose again on the third day, that he ascended to heaven and is right now seated at God's right hand in heaven, which is a real place, and that he will return someday. We believe all of that is true, factually true. That if you were to get a time machine and go back in time to the days that we say Jesus lived, you could see him doing all the things that the scripture says he did. It's factually true. But we also believe that what we read in the scripture and the gospel is spiritually true. All the doctrines that we read, the doctrine of sin, that we cannot save ourselves, that we are hopelessly corrupted by the rebellion against God, which we all partake in. That sin, that's a real thing that God's grace has been extended to us and that you receive it by faith. We believe that's spiritually true. It's not symbolic for anything. It's true. We believe that those who believe on Christ Jesus will live forever in heaven and in the new kingdom that the Lord is going to bring about. And we believe that those who reject the name of Jesus Christ will burn forever in a literal place called hell. We believe those things are spiritually true. So you can't have one or the other. You say, yes, I believe that Jesus lived and he did all those things, but that's just one way. I mean, all the doctrine that came later, you can't trust any of that. A lot of cults will do that. You know, We believe Jesus was real, but the church got it all wrong. Islam says that, for example. But you also can't believe, I don't believe any of the facts are true, but I believe the spiritual stuff. Because on what basis are you grounding all of that spiritual stuff? Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16, a lot of folks don't give the apostles enough credit, but listen to this verse. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's really funny because people will say things like, 
Now, back then, they thought about truth differently, and they knew it didn't literally happen, but they never expected us to believe it literally happened. It was a, it was a myth. It was a capital M myth. It's important for us to believe. Well, Peter straight up says, we didn't do that. Peter's like, I know what a myth is. You ever have somebody try to explain something to you, and it's like insulting because, like, I know what that means, you know, when you go to get your taxes done or something like that. Somebody's in a technical position, and they're like, now, let me tell you what this means. Like, I know what that is. It's like that with Peter. Like, no, see, what you were doing, Peter, is you were creating a, a myth for people to believe. He's like, I know what a myth is. It means something not true, and we didn't do that. We were eyewitnesses. Now, this is a common assertion. Now, listen, one side of the political divide gets a lot of heat, especially from this pulpit. So let's go on the other side. There are a lot of folks on the, on the team that we would align ourselves with who want to talk about how great Christianity is and great the Bible is and the morals are so great. And they say the symbols of Christianity are so important and the ethics we draw from the word, they're so important. We've got to defend these churches because they're preserving our Western civilization that is not what we believe. That is not what we believe. We do not believe that the symbols, whatever that means, of Christianity are enough. We don't believe that the ethics of Christianity are enough. And I ought to say, we need to make sure we're insistent on that. that well, yeah, the Judeo-Christian ethic is, has really done amazing things. We need to step in and say, no, no, it's not that. It's the fact that the gospel is true and that God honors his word and that God has filled his church with his Holy Spirit and that they are salt and light on the earth. Well, you know, same thing. No, it's not the same thing. And I'll tell you what, the devil is crafty. And the devil is willing to let some people say those things so that there are some folks in the church that say, oh, good, I don't have to believe all that stuff as long as I believe the symbols. And what could happen, I'm not prophesying here, I'm just saying let's, let's use our imagination. Let's just say that this side gains the ascendancy in our culture. And they're over there talking about the symbols and the ethics of Christianity. And we're over here stubbornly digging in our heels and saying, no, this is true. Now, all of a sudden, we're the ones holding up the advance of civilization. And now the persecution comes from the other side. This is why we don't make alliances, really, in the church. We stand with the Lord, and we're like the man in the book of Joshua who said, are you for us or for our enemies? No. <laughs> I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. It's important for us to, to say that. And I can get excited when I hear it, too. It's like, oh, that man is, is famous, and he's talking about the Bible. It's like, yeah, but he's not preaching the word. He's teaching it as the word of man, not the word of God. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if none of this is really true, he would say our faith is in vain, it is futile, and we are of all people the most to be pitied. You're going to over here talk about how great Christianity is, and it lifts up our civilization. Well, go over to Somalia and tell them that there. Because they're believing the same thing and they're getting their heads chopped off, right? In China, North Korea, they're in concentration camps for this. We've got to make sure that we read the word of God and treat it as God's word. I mean, who can we help if this isn't true? Amen? Hey, I've got a really cool story for you. Star Wars is a really cool story, okay? <laughs> There's lots of inspiring tales out there. There's lifetime movies that make people really inspired to live life. If this is not true, what are we here for? What's the purpose of the church? To, to build up the community? There's lots of things that build up communities. What makes us unique and special? That we have the truth of God. If we lose that inerrancy doctrine. Oh, the Bible, I mean, there's parts of it that are true, but not all of it. Yeah, no way. Well, I mean, does it really matter? You ever hear this one? Does it really matter if Jesus really died on the cross and rose again? Yes! 
Oh, can I tell you a story? Yeah, I got time. All right. <laughs> so when I was in Bible college, my, my Romans professor, my Romans class, he, uh, he asked a question, and this is so sneaky the way he set this up, but he goes, um, now let me ask you this question. If Jesus had only died on the cross and not risen from the dead, could we still be saved? And everybody goes, no, of course not. And he goes, are you sure? And I watched over the next 15 minutes a bunch of egghead college students talk themselves out of the necessity of the resurrection. I never said much in class. I know it might surprise you. I just kind of sat there mostly. I'm sitting there getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And I'm like, this guy's a heretic. This professor is trying to do So I, I was like, of course you need the resurrection. I said, if Jesus didn't die, why do we believe that we're going to rise from the dead if he didn't? And if he's not returning, then what's the point? And I you know, kind of went on this little mini rant. And my professor goes, he's right. <laughs> and then he, it was amazing. He goes right on and he says, do you see how easy it was for all of you to immediately let go of such an important doctrine as that? And I was like, oh, get him, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I was, that was a funny story. But it's true, right? If this isn't real, then what are we doing here? I've got a lot better things I could be doing with my Sunday. You know, I gave up. I was going to be an engineer. And here I am preaching to you people. <laughs> and if this is not true, what am I doing here? This is not true. What are you doing here? Well, there's, it's, it's our culture. It's our heritage. Are you telling me that this has no more value than some Hindu going to a temple over in India somewhere? I refuse to believe that. It's not the word of man. It's the word of God. This is not one option among many. It is the only hope of salvation. But you know what? Let's leave the negative side of it aside. This is the hope of salvation. You have the truth. You have the truth that everyone has been waiting for and hoping for and looking for all around the world. You have found it by God's grace. He chose you. He said, I'm going to reveal myself to them and grant them to faith to believe. And here you are. Praise the Lord. You've got God's salvation. You've got his guide for life right in your lap. How wonderful is that? You don't have to wonder. You don't have to lie in bed at night and say, what's going to happen when I die? I'm so worried. You can say, I get to go see Jesus and all my brothers and sisters that have gone before me. It's the word of God. That's what the gospel is. And I'm not going to be able to get into this portion of it, but I love how he says that it's the gospel at work in you. The word of God is always at work. Isn't that a, a good thing to remember? That you feel like, I just can't live up to God's standards. I, I can't do it on my own. Hey, the work, word of God is at work in you. God himself is working on you. The Lord is going to complete what he started in you. So do we still strive and put forth every effort and try our best? We sure do. But you've always got that net to catch you that it is the Lord who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Amen? That's what it means to be an evangelical Christian, by the way. Somebody who actually believes this stuff. Amen. If anybody ever asks you that, what is, what's the difference between an evangelical? We actually believe this stuff. <laughs> we believe that this is God's word and that Jesus is the Son of God and all the stuff that you typically think a Christian believes. And, of course, there are others outside of that camp that would believe those things too. But that's what I love to say. We really believe in the evangel, in the gospel, and that it's the word of God, not the word of man. So I hope you understand that, that as we gather together and open up the Bible, and as I preach it to you, and as your home fellowship leaders guide your discussion, that it's not the word of men. It's the word of God. The worst preaching moments I've ever had is when I let my own opinion sneak in there. 
And that's always when I get excited. Oh, I'm going to let them have it today. I'm gonna, this is going to change the world, and everyone is going to just be, have a revival immediately. And then I go up, and I'm not preaching God's word. I'm preaching my word, so there's no power behind it, and it falls flat on its face. I'm not that good of a public speaker to do it on my own. Tell you what, nobody is. I hope you'll permit the word of God to be doing its work in you, both today and every day. So, see what I mean? I could have preached that whole verse today, just that verse, but let's move on to verse 14. So we're giving thanks to God that they received the word. Verse 14, for you, brothers, became imitators. There it is again. We've seen that word a lot. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Okay, so again, imitators. We talked about how they imitated the apostles, and then we had a whole day talking about what they imitated specifically. But this time he's saying, you became imitators of other godly Christians. That's a good thing to do too. In particular, they're calling out the Judean churches, which would have been, of course, those churches in the promised land. And they're drawing this comparison. It's interesting because the church in Thessalonica probably never met the church in Judea, especially in the short amount of time we're talking here. But by their life, they're living out the same things that the Judean churches had lived out. And again, if it's the same Holy Spirit, you should expect there to be similarities. And the, the comparison is, is appropriate because both churches had endured persecution. You remember the story, we've told it just about every week now, but Acts 17, when the Thessalonian Jews stirred up a mob, said they got a lot of the rabble in the marketplace, and they dragged Jason, who was hosting the apostles, to the city square, and they said, these folks who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and it was so dangerous that the, the Politarchs, the city officials, said, you're going to have to give us some security here in case your people cause some stuff to be broken. You know, So that was a big deal. They chased them out of Thessalonica. They went to Berea. Those same Jews came to Berea and ran them out of Berea too, and that's why Paul went to Athens. And from this passage, we can see that that persecution only continued. It didn't stop when Paul left. Because you remember, the synagogue, it says in Acts 17, had lost many devout Greeks and leading women. It's actually kind of interesting. If you look at the Roman histories of the time, they talk about the strange fascination that noble Roman women had with Judaism. That that was a, a cultural thing, that many of the, of the well-born Roman women had an attraction to going to the synagogue and worshiping the Lord there. Now, if you've got some well-to-do people that have authority and power and money in your synagogue. Here comes Paul. He preaches the gospel. Not only are most of your Gentiles going after him, but all of the famous people and big donors start listening to him. So you kick him out. He leaves, but all those people go with him. And it says they were jealous. It wasn't a doctrinal dispute, just like with Jesus. They didn't have a problem with his doctrine. They didn't like that the people were going after him and not them. And Paul knows about persecution in Judea, doesn't he? Because Paul himself was the first spearhead of persecution. It says that he made havoc of the church in the book of Acts. But we've also got the example of the Sanhedrin imprisoning the apostles. Herod killed the apostles with the sword, and God eventually struck him down for that. But they had faced persecution but they had done so with joy and faith. Remember when the apostles had been beaten, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And the Thessalonians imitated their example, whether knowingly or not. 
very similar circumstances, Jewish persecution against the church, but they endured with joy and with faith. This is why Paul told the Galatian churches in Acts 14.22, he said that he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, listen to this, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We must enter. If you want to go into the kingdom of God, there is tribulation waiting for you. How often did Jesus tell us to expect persecution? I mean, it's right there at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when they persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of wicked against you for my sake. Early on, the apostles are probably like, what's not to like about this guy? He's just talking about love. Who hates love? And he told them, when they drag you before the synagogues, and they drag you before the councils, the Lord will be there with you. He's been warning us about that for a long time. In the world, you will have trouble, tribulation, affliction. In 1 Peter 4.12, Peter tells us, don't consider it a strange thing when you're being persecuted. Don't go, this is so weird. I can't believe this guy. I've never heard of anything like this. Peter's like, this is the deal. This is what you signed up for. You're worshiping a God who was crucified. So you should expect your life to parallel Jesus's. How many times have you yourself prayed, God, make me more like Jesus? You know how Jesus's life finished, don't you? He died a horrible, torturous death on the cross. This, of course, does not mean that if you don't suffer for the Lord that you can't get to heaven, but I think you get the point. If you're not willing to suffer for the Lord, then what kind of salvation do you have, really? Paul holds it up here as a, a sign. How do we know you received the word of God? Well, you endured persecution so well, just like the Judean Christians did. This is particularly relevant for us, of course, because we don't face a lot of overt persecution here. In this country and, and this state especially. We were talking before the service about how blessed we are to live here. Because no, nobody has some plan to get rid of the church or to shut us down. And I mean, even you know, comparing here to other states in the union, you know, it's, hey, we, we just don't have to worry about it. Like, oh, this is great. This is great news, you know, and they're like, oh, they're going to shut down the churches for good. And all of us were like, it's Alabama. They're not going to do that. That's a blessing. Praise the Lord for that. That is unique to church history. But we ought to remember that we are called to suffer and called to endure persecution. So that should that day come, don't throw a little tantrum and say, how dare you? You say, finally, we've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. There's other people around the world, even today, suffering persecution. You know, the, the Chinese churches over the last several years, they were required to remove the steeples from their churches because you're not going to be taller than any of these other buildings. You're not allowed to have crosses in the church, but you are required to have a portrait of the dictator. How do you like a required picture of the president hanging right over there, but we're not allowed to have a cross in this room? How would you like that? In France, you saw this last week, three Christians were killed in their church in France. Now, were that to happen here, are you spiritually prepared to suffer in such a way? If some crazy man came in here with a gun, are you prepared to die for the name of Jesus Christ? And the thing is, even in this country, even if, even if there were, you know, and there are in some places, there, there are some officials that... I don't know if it's a particular hatred for the church or if they just like being in charge. They're, you know, throwing their weight around with some of these churches. But those churches have support of millions of brothers in, uh, in Christ and even non-Christians. They've got free legal counsel that they have access to. They're allowed to speak. They have courts. There's all this going on. What if you had none of that? 
But what if there was some kind of crazy revolution where now none of those rights that you're used to are permitted any longer? And now they start passing laws about the church and about Christians and how you can raise your kids. Would you rejoice? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And you know how you know how you'd react in those situations? How do you react when the little stuff happens? When somebody teases you at work for being a Christian. When somebody just goes on a little rant on TV about those, those horrible evangelicals. How do you react in those moments? When it's time to go out and, and evangelize and share the gospel, are you afraid? You think, no, no, if it, if it was the real deal, I'd, I'd be ready. That's not how it works. You play like you practice. And if you, if you can't be faithful in small things, you won't be faithful in the big things. I'm not trying to bring anybody down. I'm just calling you to go home and evaluate yourself. Say, Lord, am I ready to die for you? Am I ready for that? Am I ready to have the gun to my head or my family's head? And say, deny Jesus Christ, renounce him, or we're going to blow her away. Or you're going to have to watch your kids die in front of you. Are you prepared? When Peter's wife was being crucified, you know that's what they did. In order to get Peter to renounce Christ, they crucified his wife first in front of him. And during that whole time, Peter was calling out, don't do it. You keep going. You endure. Jesus is waiting on the other side. And then Peter, of course, was crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to die the same way Jesus died. If you have truly believed that, that word, the word of God, then suffering of any kind is a cause for joy. Because it, it forms Christ in us. And persecution most of all. So, steal your mind in Christ. Let the Lord search your heart. Don't love life so much. Or don't love even freedom so much that you would resent the opportunity to suffer for the one who suffered for you. There's an old Moravian saying. They'd say, Christ is worthy of the reward of his suffering. So, that's how Paul knew. And Silas knew that these people were the real deal. Because they endured suffering with joy and with faith. May we do the same. Moving on, verse 15 now. He's still referring to the Jews from the previous verse. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. So talking about the Jews, these verses have been used by some as an excuse for anti-Semitism, hatred of the Jews. It's also been a point of accusation against the church that, see, the Bible is just full of hatred of the Jews. That, of course, is not the case, but let's, let's explain this a little bit. He says, you had to defend yourself against the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Now, that is, of course, true. They arrested Jesus Christ. They delivered him over Rome to be killed. And when Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. And they said, his blood be on us and on our children. They killed Christ. That does not exclude the fact that it was also the Romans who killed Christ. And that also does not exclude the fact that you and I, our sin, put Christ on that cross. So anybody who's ever want to come after the Jews because they killed Jesus and they deserve to die, it's like, well, hold on there, pal. It was your sin that put Jesus on that cross too. So take it easy. He says they drove us out. I don't know if by saying drove us out, if he's referring to uh, them being ran out of Thessalonica or if that's referring to the scattering that happened in Judea because he seems to be talking about the Judean Jews here. Not sure. But he calls them here enemies of God and enemies of mankind. Now, if you were to stop there, 
That sounds a lot worse than it actually is, right? See, it says right there, the Jews are the enemies of God and the enemies of mankind. Therefore, we've got to shut down Israel, and they're running the media. It's like, okay, slow down, <laughs> all right? You've got to keep reading. Why does he call them enemies of God and mankind? Because they were trying to hinder the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. The specifics are important here, because there are crazy folks that want to use them as a weapon, and other folks that want to use it as a weapon against us. We have to know what it says. Of course they persecuted the church. Paul was himself a persecutor of the church. And if the gospel is true, we believe it is, that anybody, whoever they are, who tries to hinder the spread of the gospel is an enemy of God and an enemy of mankind. In this particular instance, both examples he's referring to, that persecution had come at the hand of the Jews. And how many times in the prophets has it said that the Jews have rejected God's prophets and rejected God's word? So this is what Paul is echoing here. And we should also add, Paul and Silas and Timothy were all what? Jews. And most of the people in that church were Gentiles or Jews. So the idea that this is anti-Semitic is ridiculous. I mean, look, I, we don't have time, but read through Romans chapter 9, where Paul just goes through this long list of, I, I'm brokenhearted for my people, the Jewish people. I, I wish they would come to Christ. They, they, they've been given so much. They, they had the Messiah and the law and all the prophets, but they rejected all that. And he goes all the way through chapter 11 where he talks about how God will redeem Israel in the end. And we believe all that. As those who love Jesus, we love Israel. We love the Jews. If you don't, you need to check your heart. Jesus Christ. The word Christ, Christos, is a Greek word that translates a Hebrew word, Mashiach, which means Messiah. You worship the Jewish Messiah. You are participating in the Jewish hope. You are, as Paul would say in Romans, you, you are a wild olive branch that got grafted onto the tree. And he reminds us in that chapter too, don't get all uppity, Gentiles. <laughs> I, I was grafted in. That makes me special. Paul actually says, God brought you on. He could snap you right off if he wanted to. So just just cool your jets, Gentiles. There's no place for that kind of hatred here. I've gone on, on this in detail before, how the Lord is going to redeem Israel. But I hope we've learned our lesson, even through history, about this kind of teaching. Even if it comes from a Christian pulpit or a Christian pen, so-called. You know, folks that want to stand up and blast the Jews. And you know, hatred of the Jews is a spiritual thing because they're God's chosen people. So it, it has the, that hatred has an ability to morph itself to apply to, to any group of people. On, on the right wing right now, we see people who are, of course, standing up again for our civilization and our culture, and there are crazy people that say, and the Jews are always wanting to subvert that because they never really belong to our culture. That's messed up. You got folks on the other side that have the whole intersectional thing going on, and anybody who's in power is automatically evil, and you could see how it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to say, well, there's a lot of Jews in positions of power. That makes them evil, and now we're right back to the same place we were before. It's not, no one has a monopoly on this because it's a spiritual thing. They're God's chosen people still to this day. We love them for that reason, and we pray for them and weep for them for that reason. And that final phrase there. He says, wrath has come upon them at last. What is he talking about here? That phrase, at last, it's actually telos in Greek. It means unto the end. So we're not quite exactly sure how to translate that. Sometimes it doesn't make it. But to the telos is the end of something. It's the purpose of something. So wrath has come upon them to the end. It's either referring to, I think, one of two things. Number one, he's referring to the spiritual blindness that God had sent to Israel. 
Or number two, he's referring to the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. In A.D. 70, you might know this, the Roman general Titus would sack Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and scatter the Jewish people for thousands of years. As Christ prophesied in Matthew and Luke and other places. But here's the deal. That event was 20 years away at this point. Remember, Thessalonians was written around 50 A.D. So this has not happened yet. So it, it, either Paul is writing prophetically, referring to what Jesus said, or he's, he's not referring to that. The other possibility, and I think this is more likely, is that Paul is referring to the blindness that God sent upon Israel when they killed his son. Romans 11.25 says a partial hardening has come upon Israel. God is preventing them from national revival because they rejected their Messiah. It doesn't mean individual Jews can't be saved. Partial hardening. But that's the big deal. Luke 13.35, Jesus said, Your house is left to you desolate until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until you can recognize who I am as the Messiah, then I'm not returning your blessing here. So I think that's what Paul is referring to. That's the judgment that's come upon them. But we also know that, that the destruction of Jerusalem was part of all that. It was part of God's reprimand of Israel. So I think both are appropriate here. And both will not be remedied until the day of the Lord, until Jesus returns. We read that the tribulation period is called the time of Jacob's trouble. What would it take? Just think in your, your contemporary understanding. What would it take in order to get the Jews as a whole and the nation of Israel especially to reject all of their Jewish traditions and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah? What would it take? You know what it would take? It takes seven years of great tribulation. God is going to use it to wake up the nation of Israel. And we read in Zechariah and elsewhere that when they finally are given that spirit of repentance and they weep like someone weeps for their firstborn child and they call in the name of the Lord and Jesus comes back and delivers Jerusalem finally in the very end and sets up his kingdom. And because we're looking forward to that redemption of Israel, to say it again, we're rooting for them. That doesn't mean that every decision that political Israel makes is the right one. We want them to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also root for them because the Lord told Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. So we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We love the Jews, and we despise any kind of racial hatred or weird conspiracy theory that people want to float out there. You, you should have a spiritual suspicion of that. Not just, oh, come on, give me a break. You're telling me that there's secretly a cabal of Jews trying to ruin the world. That's what Hitler said and all those other crazy people. But you still say it today. That, that's ridiculous on the face of it. But you also need to have a spiritual reaction to that. Say, so I, I see the spirit of Satan in that. That's the spirit of the enemy in that, coming against God's people. So I hope I've made that abundantly clear. You're never going to hear me preach that, but it's an accusation that you'll hear, especially from, from Jews as well. Like, well, it says right there that we're enemies of God, enemies of mankind. And it's like, well, we need to make sure we understand what that means, and we say it in love always. Verses 17 and 18, we've got to go faster here. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. <laughs> There's a verse that describes 2020, isn't it? The pandemic and everything. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Okay, so verse 17 really is the beginning of a new section, and that's going to run to the end of chapter 3, but I wanted to wrap up this commendation of the church here. He's going to explain 
They were forced to leave suddenly, and he's going to run through what happened when they were gone. And he's trying to remind them, look, we didn't want to leave. We wanted to come back, and we did try. He says, we were torn away from you. That word is aporfanizo. You can hear it in there. It's orphan, aporfanizo. It says, we were orphaned, like we were bereft. We, were, we lost you, but not in heart. We never forgot you. We we're separated in person, but not in heart. And Paul even names himself here because you'll remember Paul was the one that fled Berea to Athens alone. Silas and Timothy remained, and we know at least Timothy was able to go back. So Paul is trying to draw himself out here. And verse 18 says, They tried to come, but Satan hindered us. Remember, we're not just facing physical enemies, but a spiritual enemy, which is why we love the people that oppose us even though they're coming after us. We pity them because they're pawns of Satan. And the next chapter is going to outline all that in detail, so I'm not really going to get into that. But remember, they're writing from Corinth here. It's a long way away. But all we need to know today is the love that these people had for the Thessalonian church. 2 Corinthians 11:28. Paul runs through that big, long list of all the things he's gone through. Trouble from robbers, trouble from shipwreck, trouble from all the rest. And then at the very end, verse 28, he says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me, of my anxiety for all the churches. I can vouch for that stress. I can vouch for that fear. When you are a shepherd of souls, you can't live life for people, and that's hard. I can stand up here and preach. You can come up afterwards and I'll pray for you. You can ask for my advice and I'll give it to you. I'll go home and think about you and and ask the Lord for what to say and ask God to give you grace, but I can't do it for you. I can't, and that's hard. And when we're separated from each other in person, that makes it even worse. Because, you know, if somebody does something crazy or something bad happens, we say, look, I'll see you on Wednesday. We'll talk then. But, you know, when we went through the, the pandemic and we couldn't be together, I was stressed. Not for me. I wasn't worried about myself. I was stressed for you. It's like, what, what's going to happen? And I was thinking of individual names, individual people, because I know your situations and your stories. And I'm like, oh, Lord, I, I know it's going to be hard for her because because of this situation, for him dealing with all that, and it's tough. I never ever want to be separated again like that. In fact, I would rather have a shipwreck. I would rather be beaten in the public square, because if I can come back here and we can be together, I can deal with that. Isn't that true? You can go to work and have the worst day. If you can come home and there's your wife and your kids, it's okay. You know, it's like, all right, you know what, that stinks, but this is okay. This is okay. And that's, that's what Paul was feeling, and I understand how he feels there. Verses 19 and 20. I love these verses. They are pastoral verses. and Yeah, let's read them. Verse 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Some of the most tender and heartfelt verses in the entire New Testament here. This is what the church of Thessalonica meant to Paul and Silas and Timothy. He calls them their hope, their joy, and their crown of boasting at the coming of Jesus. So he's referring to that return. Remember, in Thessalonians, we're talking a lot about the second coming, about the rapture, so there's a lot of references to the return of Christ. And he says, what, what is my hope? What am I looking forward to at the return of Christ? It's the church. What gives me joy to know that Christ is returning? It's you guys. What's my crown of boasting? It's the church. And that word for crown is the Greek word stephanos. 
Now, this can refer to a royal crown, but most of the time it refers to what you'd call a laurel. It was the wreath that would be put on the head of not a king, but a conqueror or an athlete. That they would, they would win the race or they'd win the battle and they would come and they would get a laurel wreath. They would get a Stephanos on their head. And you know, most of the time in the Bible, we'll, we'll get into this another time in detail, but when it refers to the crowns that we're going to wear when we stand before the Lord and we're going to win the crown of righteousness, it's that kind of crown. It's like, I've run the race well, therefore I win the laurel. Or I fought the fight well and I get the laurel. This is what he's talking about. He says, my Stephanos, my crown of boasting. So a crown of boasting, again, it's not so much the royal crown. It's like, who's going to brag about being king? It's like, I'm king. This is the way it is, you know? But if you, a, a medal around your neck or a crown on your head like that, it's, it's a way of saying, hey, I won. <laughs> I did well. This was my victory. I worked hard and I won the trophy. There it is. The crown of boasting. And he says, you are my Stephanos. You are my boasting when Jesus returns. I do exhort you on your own time to go read 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul talks about the judgment seat of Christ, where God is going to evaluate all the work you've done for the Lord, and some of it's going to get burned up, and some of it's going to last forever, and he's going to reward you for what you've done. It's not a matter of salvation, but it's a matter of, of rewards. Of you've come to the end of your race. Now, who's going to win the crown? And Paul says that what will make the return of Jesus a glorious personal moment, it's going to be glorious because Jesus is there, but what's going to make it great for me is the presence of the Thessalonians in their sanctified, glorified state. You ever go somewhere or you see something wonderful, but nobody's there to experience it with you and it's just a little less special? Let me give you a silly example. Last year, the Washington Nationals baseball team won the World Series. And I was alone downstairs watching it on TV. And I was so excited, and I hollered and woke everybody else up. But like, this was so cool, but it's like, oh, I need some folks here. <laughs> I need some people to high-five and celebrate and be you know, ridiculous and set off fireworks in the yard and all that. And, you know, you want folks there. And this is kind of what Paul is saying. is like, Jesus is going to come back. It's going to be glorious. But what makes it even more glorious is that we're all going to be together on that day. That's so cool. And he says in verse 20 that you are my glory and my joy. They had no glory as pastors. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were getting beat up. They were getting imprisoned. They were getting run out of town. They were getting mocked in the public square. We look at them now. Oh, how glorious to be an apostle. No, not then it wasn't. It's glorious now, but it's not glorious then. They got no praise. They got no recognition. Even the Christians in Jerusalem didn't like Paul very much. But they had the church. That's my glory. He said, you're my glory. My joy is you. John would write in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And parents, you know how that feels for your own biological children. It's true for your spiritual children as well. You know, it's really interesting. A pastor's eternal destiny and his everyday life is tied up in the people he serves and the people he teaches and loves. And that becomes the greatest source of both joy and pain for a Christian leader and teacher. You know, I, I was a youth pastor for seven years, and a lot of, you know, it's, it's a little different than this kind of situation because the kids were always coming in and out. You know, you have them for a year, two, three, four at the most, and then they're gone. And so a lot of kids went through there at the most, one of the most significant times of their lives, 
Getting good news about a young kid I poured into, that just brightens my whole day. It's like, hey, you know, they're getting married and, you know, they're serving Jesus and they're in the church and she's going to be a missionary. It's like, oh, praise the Lord. I get so excited. But when you get a phone call that one of your kids that you poured into and prayed with and loved and took on a missions trip somewhere and, you know, they've, they've completely abandoned Jesus Christ and, you know, they're, they're suicidal or they're angry and now they're writing things about God online. And, you know, that's heartbreaking. It's almost important, like, if it's bad news, don't tell me. Don't, I don't want to know. I don't want to, because it breaks my heart. And, it, you know, some people can hear bad news and kind of say, oh, that's terrible. Well, let's keep going. When it comes to the people that I, as a pastor, have loved and ministered to, I can't just shake it off. So I've poured off my whole life into these people. This is one reason why Calvary Chapel as an association and as a movement, this is nothing official. This is no policy. But we have a tradition of, staying in one place to do ministry for a long time. That's sort of, of the culture. There. And, and no one would get mad at you if you, know, you bounced around. A lot of other denominations will do that, which is it's not a wrong thing to do. But we see the value of staying in one place, putting down roots, living among the people, watching them grow, watching them be around you, enduring the accusations and all that, so that you can develop that bond that you ought to have. But I'll tell you guys, it takes time to build up that love and connection. But all throughout the week, let me tell you, I'm thinking about you every single day of the week. I take your calls and your texts and your emails. I'm preparing Bible studies. And of course, I'm looking, what does the word say? But I'm thinking, I've got people in this church that I love and they need to hear this message. So how do I want to communicate it to them? I'm planning articles and videos that are going to go up thinking about you, planning events, thinking about you, picking songs. Spending time here at the church more than any of you. Y'all are always on my mind. And this is the hard part, as I've said before, sometimes of being a pastor is, you know, you folks, and this is not a, a bad thing at all, but you're here Sunday, you're here Wednesday, Sunday night maybe. And even if you're involved a lot, you've got other things going on. I have nothing else going on. This is everything for me. This is everything that I do. And so I can't be standoffish as a pastor and sterile in the ministry. You know, it would be easy. There's a temptation that some guys fall into of becoming hard as a pastor. You're callous and nobody can get to you and nobody can talk to you and nobody really knows you because you're like, it's just too much. It's too hard. It's too difficult to just get out, put myself out there. And if I can counsel somebody that I don't care about, then yeah, I don't have to worry about it. But when you're talking to somebody you love, oh my goodness, you're going you're gonna to take that extra time. You're going to give the extra effort. You're going to plead with them rather than just give them what you think. Because it's not about me. This is not about my career. That's a, that's a hard thing. You know why it's hard for pastors to talk about their careers? Because everybody else has one. Everybody else has a career. Everybody else has a trajectory and a plan. And what comes next? And what about in 10 years? What about in 20? And how are you going to get there? And what's the strategy? And what's the philosophy? It's, it's different. What I do is different. And if you're called to be a pastor or a missionary, it's different for you. You can't think about it in those terms because people can tell. Can't you tell when somebody is, is using you as a stepping stone to get somewhere better? Amen. That's hard, man. I've been in those situations. I've talked to those guys. Well, I'm going to be a youth pastor for a while, and then I'm going to step up and probably take a small church. And then once I establish myself there and made some connections, I'll find something bigger. And that's when I'll really start to publish, and then my books will sell, and then I'll be up at the top. And, you know, I think probably within 10 years I'll, you know, I'll be leading national stuff and I can't do that. Paul couldn't do that. That's so carnal, isn't it? 
It's not about that. My duty is to love you and minister the word to you. I'm a shepherd. And a shepherd, you know, you don't, you don't become a shepherd so that you can climb the ladder, you know. <laughs> Shepherds don't have a career path ahead of them. They sit out there in the fields with their, their shepherd's crook and their harp like David. And all, they've got nothing else to do except love the sheep and worship God. That's my job. When I stand before God, my glory is not going to be, oh, those messages you preached were fantastic. Oh, you wrote a book. How marvelous. They're still reading that book. They're writing biographies about you. They're singing your praises. That's not going to be anybody's glory. My glory when I stand before the Lord is going to be you guys. That We're all going to be together. Those that I have led. And you know what? James chapter 3 says, I'm going to have a harsher day on judgment day than you will. So if you're not a pastor, count your blessings. James 3 says, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. Because I don't just have to answer for me. I've got to answer for you too. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. The Lord is going to run through all of y'all, and when he's evaluating your life, he's going to have me right there. Okay, you were their pastor from here to here. So how do you explain this? They believed that, and you never addressed it. They were allowed to continue in that, and you knew about it, and you said nothing. How dare you? You were their shepherd. That's not going to excuse you. Don't get me wrong. But I'm going to have to give an account for you and everybody that I've ever taught and pastored and loved and shepherded. Which is also why Hebrews 13, 17, the second half says, Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. With joy and not with groaning. There are some folks, God's going to have their pastor there, the Lord's going to call the name, and here he comes, and pastor's going to go, oh, this guy. <laughs> and the Lord's like, now, what kind of parishioner was he? Well, to be honest, Lord, he was always causing some kind of trouble, and he didn't respect my authority, and he tried to get a, a cabal to bring me down, and he never listened, and yeah, he was always just didn't like me. And the Lord's going to be like, well, what do you have to say for yourself? Well, I'm an individual. That was your pastor. I put him over you. <laughs> some churches, not this one. Some churches make their pastors' lives miserable, and they even will drive them away from the ministry or from their marriage or even from Christ. Can you imagine what some of these churches are going to have to answer for? Like, I sent this man to come and pastor you and teach you, and you made him so miserable that he abandoned the faith. How could you do that? The ideal situation is what we see here. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they loved the Thessalonians. They couldn't even stay away. They were making every effort to return. Well, it's illegal to be in Thessalonica. I guess we can't go. Paul's like, no, Timothy, go back and see if you can find a way to sneak in because we've got to go back. I can't just abandon them like that. I love it. Calvary Chapel, Trustville, you are my glory and my joy. It is you whom I will present to Christ on that final day, and it is you who are my joy both now and then. I have no glory of my own. I have you. I have no joy in life except as I see you walk in the truth. And I, I could always love you better. I know that. But you should know that I love you all dearly now. This is why I teach the word to you. This is why I lead you in prayer. This is why I agonize over the decisions that I make. And this is why I either speak kindly or sternly to you depending on the situation. Because I love you so much. And I want to see Christ formed in you. And let me commend you for a minute. Y'all make this very easy. You have been so kind to me as a young pastor. 
You've been so patient as we've been getting this church off the ground. During this year of pandemics and riots and elections and everything else, you have made it so easy for me to shepherd and pastor this church. And there are some of you who check in on me regularly and just see how I'm doing. That always takes me by surprise. That's just my own, my own problem. I've told this story before, but there was an, an assistant pastor, the new one at where I used to work, and he uh, said, hey, I want to take you out to lunch. And I'm like, all right, what's this about? <laughs> so I know what I want to take you to lunch means. I've been in ministry a while. And he sits me down and he goes, so how are you doing, Tyler? And I go, fine. <laughs> oh, yeah, so how's your family? They're fine. Because I'm sitting here thinking, all right, let's, let's, let's get through all this. What do you really want to say to me? Where did I mess up? Where, you know, what, what changes do you want to make? Well, you know, what's, what's about to happen? But we get to the whole thing, and no, he just wanted to have lunch and talk to me. And I came home, and I told Kat, I'm like, hey, Gene took me out, and he just wanted to talk. She goes, well, yeah. <laughs> I said, I, I never understand. I don't get that. And she goes, well, that's what he's supposed to do. I'm like, well, yeah, but I've never had anybody do that to me before. And there are some of y'all, and I know that I'm, I react weirdly to that kind of thing. So I'm used to being the one reaching out and checking in on people. And some of you guys are so wonderful because you'll just say, hey, Tyler, how are you doing? Like, I'm doing good. And there's nothing behind that. Oh, you guys, I'll just tell you. It makes my heart swell up when that happens. I'll tell Kat. I'll call my dad back home. I'll tell my pastor friend. Somebody call me just to say hi today. And listen, there's nothing wrong with you guys calling when you have questions or concerns, obviously. But, you know, I'm just I'm trying to tell you guys, it, you've made ministry so easy. And I go to these conferences and some of these guys, they're just beaten down in the ministry. You know, they're like, I just I've got to go back and I've got to deal with that guy again. And she's going to be there and he's on the board and I can't get him off. And they're trying to do this thing and they're, they're taking this away from me. And that home fellowship just is, it, it's become a, a cancer on this church. I don't know what to do. And I, it's, it's, it can get like that. But you guys are not that way. And I can't thank you enough. And I know that the Holy Spirit is going to continue to knit our hearts together. Whether this church stops growing today or whether in three weeks we explode to 1,000 people, the Lord is going to continue to knit us together in love by the Holy Spirit until the Lord returns. And you know what? Even after that, too, we're still going to be able to say, hey, let's have a Calvary Chapel Trustville reunion in the year 2 million and 4, you know, after the new kingdom is made. And we're going to be together forever. That love is going to endure forever. So I hope you all know that you have my love as your pastor. And I hope that you can show that love to one another, too, as brothers and sisters in Christ.